It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, the shark, baby, has such teeth there. And it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, baby, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites, will his teeth, baby. So welcome everybody to the latest episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin. As always, I'm in Forest Gate in London. Matt's in in Solihull, and. We're Zooming it this week for the first time. We decided to claw ourselves into 2020 and get on the Zoom train, which is how everybody basically has been recording their podcast for the last few weeks. And we've resisted it up until this point. But the, the WhatsApp audio hasn't been hasn't been brilliant the last two or three. So we decided to, to give this one a try. I remember the old days. I remember the old days of tapes. You knew where you were with the tape, good old tapes. But that makes me sound like I'm about 100 years old, which... Uh, which I'm not. In fact, I am exactly the same age as today's guest because the man we've recruited for episode three of Make or Break or Macklin's Take is none other than our good friend and former multiple world champion, the Cobra, Carl Froch. How are you doing? Multiple champion, I like it. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. So the reason that we've recruited you for this one is because the first two we've done with Anthony Crawler and Spencer Oliver have been slightly different we were talking to them about critical fights in their careers, fights that had they not won them, their careers could have turned out very differently. With Anthony, it was a couple of English title fights we concentrated on against Andy Morris, against Kieran Farrell, where he'd had defeats and he was rebounding. With Spencer, it was his first big test for the Southern area against a fellow undefeated fighter of Patrick Mullings. With you, we're going to talk about world title fights, your first two world title fights. Now, to get to that level, as we discussed with Anthony, you've already achieved a lot. And, and you did as an amateur bronze medal at the World Championships. By the time you fought Pascal in 2008 for the vacant WBC, you'd won a British title outright. And that in itself is a career to be proud of. But 
obviously you wanted to take it further. Uh, and winning that world title is it's the stuff that dreams are made of, but it was particularly important for you, and this is why we came to you as, as a guest, it was particularly important for you to win it at that first time of asking. And the reason mainly was because by the time that fight came around, uh, you were 31, so time wasn't necessarily on your side. You were definitely ready and the career had been well-paced, but you were 31. And had you not won it, I'd imagine you would have got another opportunity, but it could have been a while in coming because, let's face it, no defending champion in their right mind is going to give a fighter like you a voluntary. So it would have been a case of building yourself back up to mandatory. So it could really have set you back had you not beat Pascal. And, of course, you were in your hometown and under that kind of pressure. And then the first defence against Jermaine Taylor, very keen to talk about that too because you went away from home to America, dice loaded against you in that situation and pulled off what is one of the great and also quite unheralded wins, I would say, of British boxing in the last 20 years. So plenty to get through. And I've set the scene. Um, Take us back. Take us back to the Pascal fight. It was for a vacant title. How did it come about? Uh, All that kind of thing. Because I know you had problems in the build-up. I've read your book. Oh, man. (laughs) Done your homework. Uh, Are you sure you want to do a podcast, an episode with with me talking about myself and my career? (laughs) 100%. One hundred percent. Well, it's inevitable, get, anyway, isn't it? <laughs> we're going to get three or four episodes out of this, I'm sure. So the Jean Pascal fight for me was well. It came after Joe Calzaghe waited until the final day, and I'm not going to start this by giving Joe Calzaghe stick because he doesn't deserve any. He had a great career, but he waited until the final day to vacate that WBC title. I was supposed to fight at a guy called Dennis Inkin, and I spent six weeks in Tenerife, going up and down Mount Tidi. Um, Probably three times a week I was up and down that mountain. Um, there's a guy called Jimmy Yellow. Did you know him, Matt? Yeah, yeah that's right. That's yeah. right. The old boy. He passed away a few years ago, didn't he? Yeah, he was, that's right. He was a character he was. So I stayed at his villa uh, with Rob McCracken. We had, um, we had a couple of sparring partners there. And it was um, it was a real tough camp. And at the end of that camp, I, I can remember getting off the train and my phone rang. And it was um, a guy called Dennis Inkin who beat me as an amateur. Who I thought I could beat. I put him over and that. And... Points decisions the way they are when you box for England. Sometimes you think you've won the fight and you've not even come close to scoring a point, let alone winning. Um, so I was quite keen to get in with this Dennis Inkin for the vacant title. Then he, he pulled out last minute. And I was thinking, oh, this is never going to happen. And um, yeah, then I fought um, a guy called Albert Rebecca in a, in a final eliminator for the vacant title. And then I finally got my chance in December 2008 after waiting for like well over a year. I went to the WBC convention a year before that in Thailand with Rob McCracken and my promoter at the time, Mick Hennessy, and Chrissy Sanegard. A few of the boys were all out there. We had a bit of a laugh. But um, yeah, when I finally got in the ring in December 2008 against Jean Pascal for the vacant super middleweight world WBC world title, it was it was a long time coming. And um I was, at the time, unsure myself, unsure whether I belonged at world level, unsure whether I could beat someone like this. But I just, I, I, in, my, in my own mind, I thought, well, he's got to be unsure as well. He's not a world champion. John Pascal was unbeaten and he was a top amateur. I think he, he won a Commonwealth game, Games gold medal. I remember he beat Paul Smith in the final of that amateur Commonwealth Games. And um, I can remember thinking he's a good fighter. He's got fast hands. He's tough. He's unbeaten. So he's going he's gonna to come and have a right go. Same say same way I was going to come and have a go, try and win that world title. So it was it was a lot for me, a lot of element of the unknown, uncertainty, not sure. But 
Robert Kraken and myself, we, we trained out in Castlebar County, Mayo in Ireland, after we'd been to the Tenerife for the one that pulled out with Dennis Inkin. And we had a great camp, some great sparring with Darren Barker, a guy called Louis Garcia. And I can remember the camp being really... Um, Tyson Fury was actually out there. He was, he was sparring a guy. Um, what was the guy's name? I can't, it, Perez. Perez. Mark Perez. Was it Perez? It was Perez. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Brian Did Peters you, would have been out there as well. Brian Peters, what a laugh he is. I love that. <laughs> what a laugh. We had a right laugh for Brian Peters. So I was out there with Louis Garcia, Perez. Perez was trying to beat Tyson Fury up, having a good go at it as well, let me tell you. And Louis Garcia was successfully beating me up. Honestly, every time I sparred Garcia, I couldn't land a glove on him. It was like yeah, he, he was a special junior. talent, weren't he? For, for, for he three or four special rounds, talent. really special. He was tapping his foot and hitting me with uppercuts. I was absolutely like, but well, after round four or five in the sparring, you know yourself, Matt, when the guy slows down a little bit, it was a top amateur he was over from Cuba. When he slowed down a bit and held his feet, I then got in front of him and pushed him back and started working the body and slipping that uppercut in and started to have my successes. So it was a real good confidence building spar. Really got me really, really sharp. And with Darren Barker as well, jumping in the ring as well as a quality boxer and mover. Uh, the sparring was great. The fitness was amazing. And um, yeah, I had a few problems, which you mentioned. I, I bust my rib um, on the final couple of spars um, in Nottingham before before the fight. What was his name? Was it Davey? Paul, Paul Davey from Sheffield. A black kid. Punched really hard. Some terrible gloves on. Um, he's, he's a pro boxer, but a bit of a bit of a journeyman. Geez. I can't remember his name, but he's a big puncher. And he'd done my rib and his gloves. I checked his gloves after, and his gloves didn't have any padding in the gloves. And I thought, I can't start going mad here and having a go at it. But I wasn't impressed with his gloves. They were terrible. I mean, he could have cut my eye or anything. Mm. So he bust my rib. I had an x-ray at the QMC, the Queen's Medical Centre. I had a cracked rib, and I was thinking, I can't pull out of a world title fight for a cracked rib. I could get a cracked crack rib in round one. But then I got a perforated eardrum. <laughs> So I had a perforated eardrum and a cracked rib, and the eardrum was winding me up. It, it feels weird when you perforate your eardrum. You're like, yeah. it sounds like it feels like you've got a head in a bucket. Luckily, it didn't get infected, which an open eardrum can. So it wasn't really painful. It was just annoying. It affects um, your balance, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it can do. I've had it a couple of times. If you get any fluid in your ear, it can affect your balance. But I, I can't say that my balance was off, and I can't say I was in any pain. And the rib, to be honest, the adrenaline kicked over. That was only a slight, slight crack in the rib, but. It, it was affecting my breathing. But no excuses. I got in there and from round one right through to round 12, I just pretty much stood in front of Pascal and put him on his back foot. The game plan went out the window. I was boxing and moving with Louis Garcia in, in, in Ireland, which I talked about. And I was going to jab and move and box and try and just, you know, get three or four rounds in the bank. And then if I had to, if I was trailing behind on points, I was going to stand in front of him and tough it out and just try and just try and give him everything. And, um, Actually, I just, in round one, I just thought, world title, Nottingham crowd, and I went for it. And I, I tend to do that in Nottingham. I feel like I've got something to prove in front of my home crowd, and everyone I went to school with is there, my family's there. And I just feel that when I'm at home in Nottingham, I'm a different fighter, um, as Lucian Butte found out many years later. But that fight for me was massive. It was a massive point in my career because that was my first world title. And had I ever lost that fight, who knows when the next opportunity would have come along. Um, who would it have been against so I suppose yeah as, as important fights go that was probably up there with the first most important fight in my career hey hey kids hey everybody sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher how are you doing sir I am uh, in hell thank you are you uh, excited about something I am excited about this latest uh, CIA funded venture 
CIA venture. Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go. Just on the fight itself, I'm pretty sure I did read somewhere that he he rang your bell quite comprehensively in about round two, was it? In the middle rounds, you don't really you don't really remember too well, and then about midway through the seventh, maybe you kind of you realise that you're you're doing well, that you are ahead, um, and that you did you know you were you were within touching distance. But he can he can definitely whack, can't he, John Pascal? Yeah, yeah, I walked into a shot early, which which I felt, but I was fine with my memory then. But I can remember round eight, um, I got caught when I watched when I watch it back. That's when I got caught. But after round eight, I've got no memory from from round eight right through to getting into the changing rooms. Um, so it's it's not a great sign, is it? Being concussed and having a bit of um, amnesia, but it happens. We get hit hard in the head, and um, we have temporarily blackout moments where we, we, we then end up with a concussion and um, I've had it against Jermaine Taylor when I got put down George Gross put me down in, in our first fight in round one and there's moments where you, you do forget but sometimes I can't remember what happened yesterday and I'm, I don't drink don't drink any alcohol now I don't you know I look after myself I, I eat and, and live clean and sometimes if you're not really focusing or concentrating you do forget I feel razor sharp now but but yeah Pascal hit me with a couple of shots in that fight well he hit me with a more than a couple he hit me with a couple of dozen but uh, what a fighter he was I could just remember him being really really tough big puncher and really really fit because he never he never really let up I put pressure on him I put pressure on him again I hit him with shots where I thought how is he still standing I mean Matt you know yourself them small gloves did you ever wear eight ounce gloves your whole, whole yeah I did I had my first seven fights for a while to make they were eight yeah. ounce so them eight ounce gloves tiny I mean, you might as well not get my hand punch. in the glove they're like small bandits, aren't they? Yeah, you can't yeah, get exactly. hand in the glove. So for me, the 10 ounces are the same. So I'm hitting John Pascal with a right hand. With I've got lots of padding on. I've got tape just around, you know, borderline around the knuckles, as you know. And yeah. I was nailing, nailing him with clean shots. Shots that since then I've knocked people out or I've really badly hurt them and shook them up. But Pascal just swallowed it all up. He took it. He was probably dazed a little bit himself. But what a tough guy. I mean, what a massive, what an amazing fighter and a tough a tough, durable, unbeaten fighter for my first world title fight. I think that's a win that gets massively overlooked by everybody. It was on ITV, um, which is obviously terrestrial television, but I just feel that it didn't really get the accolade it deserved and it never really, never really got going anywhere. But it was largely due, due to the uh, economy, actually. In 2008, we had the big economic crash, the big financial crash, and it wasn't long after that when I signed up into the Super 6 World Boxing Classic over in America because television companies were, were falling out. I mean, ITV pulled out of boxing. BBC pulled out of it early on. I started my career on the BBC and then my world title fight was on ITV, which which was a good idea to get the coverage and get the viewers, but they don't stick with the sport because they, they can't really afford to pay the, the fees of what the fighters demand to put the big fights on and to get the world champions over. So I think that's why terrestrial television and boxing doesn't work. And I think we are where we're at now, which is probably the best place for boxing, which is if you want to watch a boxing match, a top one, you're going to have to pay for it. 
But I think you, um, it, it's, it's, it was lucky, really, for you that the Super Six came along when it did because, and similarly, in a similar situation, I remember seeing you out in New York when you were training for the Ward fight, and I'd moved over there after the Stern fight, after the Stern fight, which is on American TV. Ludi Bella flew me out and Brian Peters, and I signed with the Bella. And then I had five fights back-to-back on uh, HBO. But if that hadn't happened, really, I, I'd have probably retired not having earned anywhere near what I should have because the, the Golovkin fight and the Martinez fights and, and even the two other fights on HBO, they were like the money fights, really, that I've kind of retired with and invested and bought property, blah, blah, blah. But in the UK, as, as you kind of alluded to there, Carl, the, the money was gone out of boxing. There was no budget at Sky. You know, I think the I think the Premier League had made that big jump. I think the you know the rights fees were huge, so all the budget and all the money in Sky had been sucked out of it from the uh, you know from the Premier League. And, and I think and also I think that they were kind of sick with boxing a little bit. They felt they'd be messed about by Frank Warren and Frank Maloney and the Hattons. That you know they were doing leisure centre shows on a Friday fight night. They weren't doing big figures, and literally there was no money in boxing. But the the Super Six that came along for you, that, that kept you busy for a couple of years, earning good money because of the American dollar. But it's um, but going back a little bit, the Pascal win and then the Jermaine Taylor fight kind of catapulted you into that, didn't it? So really, the Pascal fight was, was a really crucial uh, win of your career because of where you are as well. Like you say, you were 31 years old. You know, had you lost there, no one's going to give you, as Andy said, going to give you a voluntary defence. So it would have, have been a tough road back, wouldn't it? It certainly would have been, yes. I mean, to go over to America and fight Jermaine Taylor in my very first defence, it was a big call. How did you feel big... about that at the time? Did you feel annoyed with your promoters? I wasn't sure. I wasn't clued up, to be honest. I, I thought it was quite exciting. I thought, oh, I'm fighting Jermaine Taylor. Um, big fighter, big name. He'd obviously been beat... Um, who did he lose to? Kelly Pavlik. Kelly Pavlik, yeah. But he was dead in um, the weight, uh, I think, at 160. Yeah, and he, he stepped up to super middleweight past um, J- Jermaine Taylor and, and beat Jeff Lacey, which was one of Joe Kawasaki's defining nights against Jeff Lacey. So Jermaine Taylor just jumped in and beat Jeff Lacey at super middleweight, his first fight at super middle. So I thought, I never really rated Jeff Lacey, to be honest, but I thought he's beat Jeff Lacey. That's a decent win. But look at him before that. I can remember watching Jermaine Taylor when he was undisputed middleweight champion, when he beat Hopkins and when he was really fast and knocking everybody out. When I fought Taylor, he was just past his best. It wasn't, it wasn't the force he was at middleweight, the same at super middle, but it was still very quick, very dangerous. He could punch. And um, I, was a bit of a, I was a bit of a starry-eyed when I went out there, to be honest. I can remember he pulled up outside the press conference in New York City, and this, I pulled up in a yellow cab, I think. And um, this, this big stretched limo pulled up. I think it was a stretched um, Cadillac Escalade. And all these guys in suits got out and then someone was holding an umbrella because it was raining in. Jermaine Taylor stepped out this this big Cadillac in his suit with his sunshades on, even though it was raining. But he just looked really, <laughs> he looked like the Don. He looked, he looked so crisp and so polished. And I can remember him walking into the press conference and I was there with my, my Lonsdale t-shirt on, my hoodie, my hoodie top. But I had the WBC world title over my shoulder. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm the champion and I've always been quite stubborn and quite quite gritty and quite matter-of-fact and, uh, you know, quite bolshy and sometimes a little bit, you know, nonchalant when I fight because that's just my character and that's what's got me to, to where I am. That's got me through tough parts in the fight. So although I was putting Jermaine Taylor on a pedestal, I was still thinking, I've got a chance here. I could do him. He's been beat. Kelly Pavlik's beat him. 
I've just beat Jean Pascal, you know, kind of telling myself that I belong there and telling myself that I can actually do it. But it wasn't, it was annoying. I just won the world title in, in, in England, WBC world title in my hometown on, on national television, on terrestrial television, ITV. And then all of a sudden I've kind of got nowhere to go. Like you say, Sky Sports has gone, uh, not gone, but limited. And, you know, Sky pulled out a boxing pay-per-view. Um, I think it was Eddie Hearn, actually, his fight with um, the fight he promoted against with David Hay and Audley Harrison. I mean, it was it was a terrible fight. Mm. And I think that was the last pay-per-view before it got brought back. Um, and I brought it back with a Mikel Kessler rematch um, a few years later. But yeah, going back to the uh, Jermaine Taylor fight over in Connecticut, in Foxwood Resort Casino in Connecticut, in America. That's uh, where I thought I love King. Yes, of course it was. I mean, it's a great venue. I loved it. I thought it was good. It's it's not Las Vegas, and it's it's no. it's, it's not Atlantic City either, which ain't too clever. It's a strange place, isn't it? It's just it in is. the middle of nowhere. I think America and casinos are strange places anyway. They're quite lonely and depressing, and I think so anyway. If you go into a good show or a big fight, it's great. But if you're there a week or two weeks, build up to the fight. You just want to be in your room. Like yeah, but I think me, I think my next day after Golovkin was a lot more depressing than your next day after Jermaine Taylor. No, no, I can imagine it was. I mean, losing a fight is never, it's never great, is it? When you lose, you get beat. You wake up in the morning. Well, if I hear them fruit machines ringing one more time. <laughs> yeah, I think I lost my plot out there if I was out there too long. But um, mm. no, John Pascal, career-defining fight, really, really important fight in terms of getting that world title, and then to go over to America. And, and beat Jermaine Taylor, but not only beat him, beat him in the manner in which I did, but then for it, for it to not get noticed by anybody in Britain because it was shown on, it was shown Sunday, Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon on ITV with adverts between every round. So everybody knew the result anyway. There's adverts between every round. No one's interested. I mean, yeah. it's a tragedy really, but Showtime paid me half decent money. It's not the kind of money that people are earning now for defending world titles against top fighters and number one challenge, number one mandatory challengers. But I mean, me, it was decent money at the time, wasn't it? It was yeah. decent money with what was around at the time. Listen, I had a seven pound a week paper round, and when I when I quit boxing for England, I was on thirteen grand a, a year working at Diamond Cable, which then was NTL, now Virgin Media, and I turned professional. And when I made fifteen grand for the Commonwealth title fight. I couldn't believe I had 15 grand in hand. I went out and bought a R32 Golf. I absolutely loved it. I'd, I'd never had that kind of money. And then I started to realise, but the old British title, 25 grand, defend it, 25, 30 grand. That's the sort of money I was earning. And I was stacking up a couple of figures in the bank. And I've always been quite business minded. I did a business and finance course at Clarendon College. And a good friend of mine was into property massively. Avatar Singh, um, a Sikh geezer that I've known for quite a few years. So he sort of got me... He gave me the idea of, of getting onto the property ladder and, and, and that, that's where I've made most of my investments with, with the money that I've earned. So I've been very astute with my money and I never really looked at how much I was earning per fight. I never really boxed for the money, whether that was stupid or not. I'd always boxed for the love of boxing and for the titles. Even years later, when I'd made plenty of money through the Super Six, Eddie Hearn said to me, and I'm fast-forwarding a little bit now, but he said, listen, you're due an easy fight, you're due a knockover. But then the Lucian Butte fight was put in front of me for the same money. And it wasn't big money. And I took the Butte fight because there was an IBF world title at stake. And I just lost to Andre Ward. So I didn't even think about the money. I was thinking, I want that world title belt because I love boxing and I want to become world champion again. 
Well, I do remember you saying, um, it's in your book, actually, I think, that after you beat Pascal um, the next week, you were doing some grouting and putting in a fireplace because you would you would get back to work, get back to working on your properties. But just to get back to the transition between those two fights, as you mentioned, you're on terrestrial TV, you've got home advantage in your hometown, and then all of a sudden, a few months later, everything is different. You're away from home. It's very unfamiliar. As you say, a lot of people didn't even really realise that the the fight was on. I mean, mentally, as as we've alluded to, that's that's a bit of a a culture shock in its in itself. And then there were problems in the build up again. You, you tore ankle ligaments. You had a you had a problem with your eye. I mean, were you at any point close to not fighting against Jermaine Taylor? Because it would, by the sound of it, have been understandable if you tried to kick that one back. No, I was very close to not fighting again, but not out of my own choice. You said there about my ankle. I, I rolled my ankle three weeks before, and I can remember exactly what it was. It was on Manor Road in Gedlin. I was running with my best mate, Adam Fuchs, at the time. And I can remember I was absolutely flying. I felt super fit three weeks before the fight. I was about 12 stone, one pounds, which is 169 pounds, and I fight at 168. And I was coming down Gedlin Road, crossed the road, and there's some cars coming. So I ran in front of some cars and got between them and then misjudged the curb, and it was dark. And my ankle sort my foot half went on the curb and half off the curb. So it rolled, it tipped off the curb and rolled my right ankle. And all my weight was on my foot. So I fell over, got into a commando roll. Because when you run quite a lot, you fall over a little. I fell over quite a lot running. I fell over around the woods and hitting tree stumps and misjudging stuff. But I kind of, I'm quite good at falling. So I've, I've rolled over my right shoulder, did a commando roll. But I was going too fast to stand up. So I did two rolls and then I stood up. And I thought, I'm all right, I can keep running. So I'm, I'm carrying on running. And then I, I fastly realised that actually I'm in, I'm in absolute agony and my right ankle was killing me. And um, then I stopped and started walking. Like I walked and I stopped. And a car pulled up next to me and said, bloody hell, mate, are you all right? I, I, saw, I saw that. I said, oh, yeah, yeah no, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'll, I'll walk it off, I'll be all right. He goes, bloody hell, are you sure, are you sure? Your hat, I had a hat on when I was running like a headband. I left that, fell off my head, that was back there. He'd picked it up. And I was walking, I looked down at my foot and my ankle had ballooned up almost instantly. So my ankle was swelled up straight away. And if for your ankle to swell up like that straight away, you know you've tore something or done something bad. So I jumped in his car and this geezer drove me home, he did. Drove me and Adam home and I went home, put my foot on the top of the, on the chair in, in the kitchen and looked at it and I could see it like swelling up like a balloon. I got the ice pack on it. And yeah, my ankle was terrible. And two or three days I went for a scan, torn all my ligaments in my ankle, got a brace for it. My foot went black. All my leg went black up to my knee. So my whole right side of my leg and my foot was terrible. I mean, the blood inside that was... So I didn't think I was going to be able to going to be able to box. And I really wanted to box. I wanted to defend my title. I wanted to... Um, How many weeks out was this, Carl, from the fight? This was about... I'd, I'd be able to tell you exactly. I've got all my diaries down there, but... I think it's about three and a half weeks. I mean, I didn't hardly have any time. My right ankle still hurts me now. I bounce on the trampoline with my kiddies. And if I flex my foot up too much, the, the ankle ligament, it, I can't walk for a couple of days. It's an absolute killer. But I just I just thought, I'm still fighting. I'm not bothered. I'm not interested in pulling out. I want to fight. I just, I'm 30, like Andy said, I'm 31, 32 years old. I'm world champion. I'm going over to America. I want, you know, I just don't want to miss any opportunities. So I thought the fight was off but I was still trying to go through with it. And after about a week of having physio, and uh, did I have my, I don't know if I had my foot drained. I don't know if I had some fluid drained out of my ankle so I could have a scan. It was quite bad anyway. But 
ultimately, I was cycling. I was on the step machine where your feet are on the ground and you're doing like the, the st- I don't know what I don't know what that machines are called where you're holding them ski things. Oh, cross trainer. Yeah, the cross trainer. I was on that, and it's not as good as running, but I was doing that. I was cycling on the um, spinning machines, and I'd already done all my camp. I've only got three weeks to sharpening up, but I can remember I could not run. There's no way could I run. Uh, but we went over to finish off the camp in in um, in Canada. Um, so before the Jermaine Taylor fight, my main sparring partner was Jean Pascal, amazingly enough. And uh, the, the place I stayed at Niagara on the Lake in Canada, which is just across the border for North America, Connecticut. It's northeast, isn't it, Connecticut? It's like at the top. Yeah, top yeah, 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 right up there. So that was on the border. So you know what? I probably rolled my ankle. I, I may have rolled my ankle about five weeks, five and a half weeks before the fight because I had a couple of weeks in England and I still had them. I still had about three weeks in Canada. So it couldn't have been three and a half weeks. I'd, like I say, I know exactly, but it yeah. was close enough for my foot and my ankle to still be bad and I couldn't run right on the run up to the fight. But I did alternative stuff for my fitness. And um, really enjoyed it in Canada, Niagara on the Lake, amazing facilities. I forgot what the place was called, but it was a spa that we stayed in and we used the facilities there, a bit of a fitness gym, um, a little bit poncy, but the, the boxing gym was around the corner. And Jean Pas- um, yeah, Jean Pascal turned up with his, his older brother and give me loads of sparring and loads of training and fitness. Adam Harris was there, a guy who's friends with McKennessy, who's actually Canadian. And that was my final preparation for my final march forward for defending my world title against Jean Pascal. But I sustained an injury years before that to my eye. I've got a, I've got a reoccurring corneal erosion. So anybody in the medical profession will know what that is. But for the layman, that's the skin on your eye, your cornea. I've got a tear on the eye. I've still got it now. It doesn't affect me really much unless I'm in really dry conditions like air conditioning overnight. But the eye teared open again. And when the eye's torn open, you can't open your eye because it stings too much when the air gets to it. And when you close your eye, your eyelid, inside of your eyelid stings your eye. I've got lenses now. So when my eye tears open, which it, which it does periodically, always did it when I was sparring. It used to really wind me up. I put like a contact lens on my eye. It's like a protective layer. But my eye was that bad. I could not open my eye. I couldn't close it. The, the white of my eye was bright red. And I'm a week out. I'm a week out. And the Americans want me to go and do an eye test. You've got to do, I don't know if you know yourself, but you have to do yeah. the American like medical. Yeah. So I went for my Dilate, medical, yeah. Passed all that. They put the dilation drops in. My eye was stinging. And I said, oh, I've got something in my eye last week. Just it's a, No, sorry, this morning. It's just this morning. It's just unlucky. I was trying to blag it. And um, they put a dye in my eye dilated the eyes and they looked down my eye and said you've got a tear you've got a tear on your cornea i was like oh bloody how did that happen i went i'll be all right it's, it's not really bothering me like trying to blag it to get through and actually in pain really that's sore i've done that i've done oh, that. Really? Well, i've done it where you scratched it inspiring you get a flick and then it gets infected and, and like you yeah. say you can't close your eye because it rubs against yeah. it it's agony Mate, my eye was stinging it's horrible it's, it's like i didn't sleep for a couple of nights properly really disruptive and i managed to get some steroid cream which we was a bit concerned about because obviously the drug test certain asthma pumps and nasal sprays and eye drops but this eye drop had steroid cream in it I've never had anything like it I put this drop in off this doctor and about two hours later my eye was healed like I've yeah. never had that it's before. the only thing that works though but the I antibiotic or steroid yeah. I dropped some of that in it and I'm telling you like literally the same day my eye was okay and that was a week before the fight probably five days before so I was thinking right nothing else can go wrong now nothing else can go wrong I've done my ankle I'm back my eye's bad that's back now. And I just thought this is meant to be. And that gave me that, that mindset to go ahead 
and um, step into the ring confidently that actually I'm meant to be here. Now it's just down to me. I've got to put a performance in. And lo and behold, Jean Pascal was, uh, sorry, Jermaine Taylor was far too fast for me. And he, he was on form to start with, wasn't really, he? He looked really like fast. going up to super middleweight and giving him yeah. a new lease of life. Listen, he hit me with a right hand, he hit me with a couple of jabs. I couldn't, I didn't see it coming. He hit me with an uppercut and the right hand he hit me with that dropped me in round three. I didn't know where I was, didn't know what day of the week it was. I was I just felt I was being outclassed. And when he dropped me, I thought, this is it for me, man. I've I've, I've come this far, world champion. I was kind of dejected and kind of I wasn't gonna quit. I'd never quit. But in my head I was thinking, I don't even know. The belief here. left you a little bit. The belief had yeah, left it did, you. In the it did. But it was at the end of round three, and I sat back down in my corner. I can't even remember what Rob McCracken told me and what he said and how calm he was. I can kind of remember him saying, just get behind your boxing, just jab and move. Don't commit, don't reach, don't overreach. Um, but how much of that sunk in, I don't know. But I did just box and move and jab. And slowly but surely, as the rounds got through with that Jermaine Taylor fight, he started to tire. I was tiring as well. I was absolutely exhausted. But he was more tired than me. And... I've got this thing in me. You were digging in, weren't you? Yeah, you were I was digging, digging in deep. I mean, I'm sure he was digging deep, but I refused to quit, mate. I, I, I just, I thought I've got three or four rounds left here, and I've started to get to him, started to catch him. He was hurt, and um, yeah, I mean, everybody's seen the Jermaine Taylor fight. If you haven't, shame on you. Go and have a look at it. Carl Frotch, Jermaine Taylor. What a fight! What a defence that was. <laughs> well, well, one of the best. I mean, I've got to say it because I said this to you, didn't I? We were talking about people got to get on. I said, you better talk, get Carl on talking about the Jermaine Taylor fight. And you said, yeah, and the Pascal one. Because for me, the, Carl's win against Jermaine Taylor, I remember it happening. I remember him stepping up, losing two fights with Public. So obviously, I was a middleweight and Public was a fight I wanted. And Jermaine Taylor going up to super middleweight. I remember how big he was at, what, you know, at middleweight, at 160 pounds. I remember thinking, He'll have a new lease of life, he will, at 168. And he'll have that speed and he cracks really hard. And like Carl said there, he was boxing so well, but he just grinded him down and grinded him down. And to get to get that knockout when he's behind the cards with like 10, was it 10 seconds or something left on the cards, that's got to be one of the best ever wins by a British fighter away from Britain. Maybe the best. You know certainly I mean? the best comeback. It's certainly the best comeback win. But it doesn't get the because it was didn't get the build up and the profile. It it get it can be forgotten about a little bit, but it, it, it was this al- is a crime because it was almost like it never happened. It was almost like it never happened because, and if you'd lost, it would have been almost like the win against Pascal never happened. That that's how kind of important those those two fights were really. But but just to go back to some some good old fashioned shithousery which took place during during fight week because we spoke to Seltzer about this fight um, down at Fitzroy Lodge last summer and he's got clear memories of it because he said that the week, your injuries aside, that was one thing. He said that the week itself was difficult because the press engagements were in New York uh, rather than in the, in the casino. The Wayne was in the casino but everything else was in New York so you're in cars all day. And then on the day of the fight, a limousine was supposed to turn up to take you to the venue. It never turned up. So you decided to walk. You're about half an hour behind in terms of your preparations. Then the dressing room's freezing cold. The dressing room was a joke. It was tiny as well. Then they march you out of the dressing room. Um, they just come in unannounced when they, I think they might have said 20 minutes. And a minute later, they just say, right, come on, right, you've got to go now. Then take you to the holding area and just leave you there for 20 minutes. I mean, these are the kinds Dude. of... And then I went down in a small lift. I went down in a lift 
and the lift opened up in the venue and it was only a small venue there was 3700 people there and it was it was like a like a concert hall so it was mm. like a stage the ring was on a stage and the the seats are up you know what a concert hall looks like and that's what it was like 3700 um, 90% american but they're not really majorly behind taylor or behind anyone particular but because Jermaine Taylor's American he's getting the cheers you know I turned the crowd around but it was very hostile I, I mean the, the changing rooms was tiny Rob McCracken as soon as he got in the changing rooms and he found out that that was the changing room we was we was with we was stuck with and that was it it was like no this is fine plenty of room in here no problem because Rob never panicked me I was mindset thinking, yeah if Rob's panicking I panic so Rob picked the sofa up chucked it out the door picked up some other furniture and a, and a, and a table got that out the door, just shoved it on the corridor, didn't care less. And then we had some room. And then we was able to get the bandages on. The gloves weren't even on. And they came and tapped on the door and said, you got five minutes. And like Usually I like to get my gloves on, get my tape around my gloves, feel comfortable. Yeah, did that hands... feel you a, a little unsettled? Because that wouldn't... Oh, it was horrible. I hate that rushing. I'll tell you something now. We, we got into a lift and I can remember that the corner man, what was the corner man's name? It was an American. It was, a, it was a, quite a big black American geezer. It was sound he was. Ger- Gerald something. Gerald, Gerald something. It was a proper sound geezer. I give him a, give him a few grand um, cash bonus because he was like a lucky child for me. He was the last couple of days. And we went into this lift and he said, just get ready, son. This lift, this lift leads to the, the, to the arena. And I was like, hey, where are we? I didn't even see the venue. I didn't see the ring, anything. The lift opens up. And I come out of the lift and there's literally Americans shouting at me, English pig, some beer went over me. And I'm looking and thinking, that geezer just chucked beer on me. I was going to do this and have a nice stretch out with my arms and open them up. I punch him in the face. I was that wind up. Because he was stuck to my right while we're waiting to be called forward. And he's chucked beer on me and I thought, I could knock him out here. I could backhand him straight in the face. And the, reason, the only reason I didn't do a big stretch and smack him in the face is because he had glasses on. I was thinking... If I have his eye out or something, that's out of order. He's only chucked beer on me. He don't deserve to lose an eye. But I was fuming. And um, we walked to the ring and I was like, I walked to the ring, got in the ring and I'm looking over thinking, oh yeah, Jermaine Taylor's here. I'm looking at the big screen as well, the big screen. And it wasn't until they started announcing Jermaine Taylor's name and he starts scraping his foot on the floor. He does like a ball thing, doesn't he? Where he puts his gloves up and yeah. he rubs the bottom of the soles of his feet on the canvas. And I was looking up at the big TV screen, watching Jermaine Taylor do that. And I thought... He did that when he fought Hopkins, and he did that when he fought. I thought, oh, shit, I'm in with Jermaine Taylor. I better switch on. Because the reality of it only set in and hit me when I was in the ring on the night in the arena, and that was dangerous because I but was half asleep. it was so rushed in the build-up? So rushed, so rushed. I was half asleep. I was so focused on my injuries with my eye and my ankle, and I just it felt like a daze. I was sparring, I was sparring John Pascal in Canada one minute, then I'm over in New York, and then over in Connecticut. It was... It was just a mad, it was a whirlwind of an experience. It was all new to me. But bottom line, and ultimately, I'm just a tough son of a bitch. I was fit enough. <laughs> I was fit enough. And I'm not blowing smoke up my ass because I'm just... No, no, I'm no, listen, tough. you're allowed. You, that, you, no, that's true. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I, just, I just got through it the best way I can. And I thought, I'm not giving up. If I have to get flattened or run out of steam where, where they've got to carry me back to the changing rooms, I'm prepared to do that because I'm the champ. I've got the belt. And when Jermaine Taylor started to fade, because I caught him with a couple of shots in round nine or ten, he, he stepped back and he stumbled a bit. When I knew I could hurt him, I started getting all this confidence. And all of a sudden, I've got my second win. As knackered as I was, you know yourself the feeling. Yeah, you feel yeah. like you're, you're back in round one again. And he was backing up. He was, he was holding on a little bit. But to be fair to him, he never held on fully. If he'd have held on in the last, in the dying seconds of the last round, he would have held on to me 
and the bell would have gone and he'd have won on points. And fair play to Jermaine Taylor because he was asked in an interview about two months later that I read and someone said to him, you could have held on and you'd have got that on points. And he says, no, I can't win like that. That's not how a man wins. I don't think he had the strength to hold on at that point. I think he was exhausted. He was broken. But isn't it interesting, Andy, as well, that, you know, I, I know to a degree, the psychological uh, roller coaster of a fight. When you said you were down in the fourth, you thought, whoa, I'm not at this round, level. Yeah. It's too so. good for me or the speed. And then you get back into the fight a bit. And then all of a sudden, here now, you, you, you're exhausted. You're tired. But you're rocking him with shots. And all of a sudden, that belief is coming into you now. Yeah. And all of it, fatigue. You don't even care yeah. about fatigue then. And you're just going for it. Then. Listen, but even I'm... at that, to find those shots in that last round under that pressure to get the yeah. job done, still Amazing. phenomenal. Amazing. I mean, I'm a big fan of Rocky Balboa. I love Rocky 1, 2, 3. Rocky 4, when... When he doesn't think he can beat Ivan Drago, and I'm talking a bit cliche now, whatever, and you can think, oh, no, the rubbish talking about, talking about a Rocky film. But when he cuts Ivan Drago and Drago's bleeding above his eye, it's almost like he bleeds. You know what I mean? This guy bleeds. Yeah. He's human. Is he a human being? And when Jermaine Taylor stood back and rocked a little bit after I caught him with a right hand, in my head I thought, you know what? I can hurt him. And all of a sudden I go from feeling tired, dejected, outclassed, outspeeded to thinking... I could do this. And then round 10, 11 and 12, that big finish. And I got it because little things can change your mind during the fight. Little little snippets and little moments that make all the difference. That was your moment where he goes, uh, he comes back to the corner and he's caught and he goes, he's just a man. Be more man than him. Yeah, that's it. That's, <laughs> it. that's the one. A 245 pound Italian tank. Run over him. I love it. <laughs> Maybe he was saying in his corner, he's like a piece of iron. I cannot hurt him. Uh, <laughs> it's true. It's true. But, uh, how, how, what were you thinking going into that final round? Because it, I watched it not that long ago, actually, this fight. And with my scorer's hat on, it was a hard fight to score. It was it was a difficult one to... A lot of rounds, it was difficult to kind of call them with any real conviction and and when when I saw the scores that the judges had returned so two of them had you four rounds down and one of them had you four rounds up now that's a massive split um, a massive a massive now, was I actually up on one of the cards was it I think you were up on one of the cards I'll check it I'll I'll check know I was it, down I, I was down majority then at least so I couldn't win on points going into that last round and I kind of I kind of got the feeling that because I got knocked down early in the fight and it was still close I kind of got the feeling that I needed the stoppage, but I didn't know 100% categorically I needed the stoppage. I didn't go out in round 12 to try and knock him out and finish him because I wasn't told by Rob McCracken to go out and try and finish him. He never said, go and knock him out. But when Rob says to me, right, you need to step on the gas now, you need to put it on him, you need to stay on him. And the way he says it and the way he looks at you, because we've we've got that bond throughout my earlier part of my career, I know that he means work until you can't work anymore and, and and don't take a breather don't go on your back foot and hold on and don't just jab a move just pull it on him and make sure you get to him and hit him as hard as and as often as you can I knew I knew what I had to do going into that last round but I didn't go out to stop him but it just so happened that me being forceful and putting it on him and hitting him as often as I could I mean I put him down in round 12 within uh, towards the end of the last minute and then I hit him on the ropes with 18, I've counted them a few times, 18 unanswered shots. And then the referee jumped in because Jermaine Taylor was slumped arms down, head down, similar to Groves in the first fight on that excellently timed stoppage by Howard Foster. Um, <laughs> you know, the referee had no choice but to jump in 
and stop the fight. And I just could not believe it. And the commentary that night was amazing because he says, I'm coming home to England, mom, and I'm keeping my title right at the end, just when I finished him. And uh, it was a, it was a massive moment for me. And um, I was on cloud nine for the following, following two or three weeks. I listened to Mike Costello's BBC radio five live commentary. I did an interview with him the next day. I watched it on the television after that, and because I'd been punched so hard, I kind of forgot what had happened. And when I watched that finish, that last round, which we can watch still now and enjoy, the next day on the Sunday, on my bumps and bruises and my cuts and my bad ankle and my, my, my everything was aching and paining. I didn't feel any of it because I'm watching that. I've still got the belt. And, Euphoria. Um, it's just all. It's just the natural buzz that you can't explain. The natural high. Um, and even and though we didn't get the. Even though it didn't get the kind of the profile and the publicity and the accolades over here that it should have got, I think it really you really arrived in America with that performance. Yeah, hundred percent. And I never really gave that a second thought. I, I never thought about I'm not getting. I thought I was getting the credit I deserved. And I thought I was getting shown because Mick Ellison convinced me. No, that's on ITV. This is going to be great. When people see this, is going to be amazing. I was like, well, a few years later, no one bloody saw it. No one saw the fight. Yeah. Um, I'm on American TV, Showtime. I'm getting paid decent-ish. You know, it's six figures. It's not seven figures, but it's still good money for a guy who was earning 13 grand a year while he was, when he turned pro. And um, I didn't realise how bad it was. And then after the Jermaine Taylor fight, that opened up the contract for me to then go into the Super 6 World Boxing Classic with, with um, six top fighters, me being one of them. Andre Durrell, Andre Ward, Jermaine Taylor, Mikel Kessler, myself, Who's a six-one? Arthur Spider. Abraham. Arthur Abraham. And, you know, Abraham was a middleweight coming up to um, super middle, but that's six top fighters, six monsters that you want to you want to avoid as much as you can. I mean, I didn't fancy fighting Jermaine Taylor again, to be honest. And when, when the draw came out and it was Andre Durrell, as, as, as fast as Durrell was and as, as awkward as he was, he was Olympic bronze, I think, and he was another unbeaten fighter. Mm. I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd rather fight somebody different than, than fight Jermaine Taylor again. Um, but yeah, the the Jermaine Taylor fight opened that door for me that had been firmly closed shut in England. The television, the money, and then the accolade and the and you know the every fight wasn't in America. My first fight was in Nottingham against Darrell. It was at four in the morning, which was a bit of a killer, but it was still in Nottingham. The next fight was in Denmark against Kessler, and then we went to Finland, a neutral territory for, for Abraham. And then it was at Bally's bloody casino, whatever it is. What is it, Bally's? No, what's the place I went to? Broadwalk Empire in... Um, Boardwalk Hall, I think. Boardwalk Hall. Atlantic City. I mean, that's that's like Las Vegas, isn't it? I'm sorry, it's supposed to be Las Vegas, but it's nowhere near like Las Vegas. It was Las Vegas <laughs> before Las Vegas got built. It's more like Blackpool on steroids, isn't it? That's it's right. It's not a very nice place. <laughs> but um, I was there twice, and I blame that place, uh, going back there the second time, partly on the Ward loss. I mean, Ward, fantastic fighter. Would I have beat him? Probably not. But going back to Atlantic City for a second time after I'd already been there, I've already been flagging cabs in New York for ages, and now I've got Andre Ward waiting for me at the end of the tournament. I was just glad that that tournament was over in the end. It dragged on too long, but it was very, it's a funny very place, Atlantic City, career. isn't it? You feel, you feel in Atlantic City, you feel like you woke up in 1986. Mate, listen, <laughs> in Atlantic City, the hills have eyes. I'm telling you, you don't <laughs> want to be taking the wrong turn at 12 o'clock at night in Atlantic City. Just stay in your room. So I took those wrong turns. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to go back to that, to that Taylor fight. Uh, I just had a look at the cards, and, and and that was right. You were four rounds up with one judge. Um, you were four down with the other two. So as I said, it wasn't. It wasn't that easy to score. Um, but what 
I'm curious about is what do you think they thought of you going into that fight, Jermaine Taylor and his team and Lou DiBella? Do they think they looked at you and just thought, okay, there's this guy Frotch from the UK. He's won a British title outright. He's now won the WBC title, but it was a vacant title against Jean Pascal. Let's get him over here. Jermaine will beat him. Did you think they felt they were buying a title almost and just getting you over to America and that they that, and that you you weren't going to cause problems? 100% that's what happened. You're dead right. But I didn't think that, no. I just thought that I'm champion. And the reason I say 100% that's what happened is because I became quite friendly with Lou DiBella. He's a great character. Uh, Matt Mackling probably, I don't know if you're going to back me up or not, but I think he's a great character. Yeah, a great player. character. Great character. And, uh, I like him. I like him. And I spent a bit of time with him in New York and at one of his friends' places, Beauty and Essence. Well, you, um, you, you, uh, you really won him over that fight with Taylor, even though Taylor was his man. I remember yeah. I signed with Lou, didn't I, after yeah, uh, the Stern fight. And, you know, he, that night, you really won him over. He was a, even though you weren't, he, you weren't his fighter, he was a big yeah. fan. That's right. That's right. And he did tell me, he said, listen, we brought you over to get beat up. We didn't think you could win. We knew you was tough, but we thought you're not good enough. You've not got the skill. You don't got what it takes. Jermaine Taylor will win the fight against Farage, then he'll have another career at super middleweight and he'll be another a two-weight world champion. But obviously he found out what I'm all about. The Sheriff of Nottingham <laughs> came to town and stuck it on him in the last round, the dying seconds. And, uh, you know, fair play to Ludi Bella. He took his hat off to me and, and congratulated me. And um, Jermaine Taylor then went on and he had a, quite a bad loss and a brain injury. He was quite lucky, actually. Not lucky that he got a brain injury, but lucky to get away with a brain injury um, against against Arthur Abraham in in the Super Six. He got knocked out. Quite it, was, bad. it was a similar thing, wasn't it? Again, he was. I think he was up on the cards, wasn't he? But yes, in the, the last round, well, it was busy and he got caught of a hell of a shot. And Arthur Abraham can punch really hard. He only hit me once in my fight with him. He hit me once in the last round, and I felt it. I don't know why he didn't start earlier. Whether I just shut him out, and kept him off. But unfortunately for Jermaine Taylor, he got injured. And I don't think he's ever recovered from that injury because I think mentally he's, he's not been stable and he's had a couple of problems. He's, he's been done for firearms, hasn't he? And his uncle had yeah. he shot someone. Yeah, he someone. He's done a bit of time in prison. Um, but boxing, like I say, it could take you down so many different paths and you can be lucky, you can be unlucky. You need a bit of luck in boxing. You need a little bit of luck in any sport. But as long as you do the work and you're fit enough and tough enough and you leave it all in the ring every time. I think you give yourself the best possible chance. It's certainly not a sport boxing that you can cut corners in or you can try and cheat because you'll always get found out. Hey, everybody. This is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. So I'm just going to take you back a bit, actually, to earlier in your career when, when you turned pro because well there's there are two tie-ins here me and Macklin both have a tie-in here Macklin's is the fact that when he went to turn pro he very nearly signed with Mick Hennessy because of the Rob McCracken factor and he would have been a stable mate of yours uh, and my tie-in is that when you were training down at the Lennox Lewis Centre on Clapton Road um, in uh, in Hackney um, I used to go down to that gym to do a bit of training myself. I just started doing some boxing training. Yeah, and I used to tie my sessions to finish with when you lot turned up, you and Howard Eastman, Gilbert, 
uh, Darren probably would have been there. David Walker was definitely there. Uh, and... Do you know the kickboxer kid that was down there? A guy who did some kickboxing, a bold head, quite a young lad. I can't remember his name. No, I don't. I, I know who you're talking about, but I was down there with an Italian guy called um, Piero Severini, who was an ex-pro who'd come over here. And I basically was just trying to learn a few basics because I knew it would help me when it came to trying to commentate on boxing. I had no grand ambitions, although he did put the wind up me massively one day when I'd kind of finished. And he came in and said, oh, Rob McCracken, the trainer there, he's looking at you and he thinks you're, you know, you look about the right size for like middleweight, super middleweight. Are you available for sparring? At which point I just shat myself. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Rob McCracken was always eyeing people up for sparring for me. <laughs> oh, man. Would have been, there's absolutely no way I'd have, I'd have, there's absolutely, I'd have run a mile, run an absolute mile. But it was I'd great. Been gentle with you. <laughs> I somehow doubt that. Um, but it was great fun watching you all. It was great fun watching you all. And um, Howard Eastman, I remember one day coming in with a big um, bird of paradise in a cage yeah. and just plonking that down in the change room. He had a parrot, didn't he? he nearly yeah, had his finger it, off. That's it. He was and stroking his neck and it went, ah, and bit yeah. his finger. And I thought, he's crazy. <laughs> it, 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 it was I remember me, I remember it was me an interesting place, wasn't it? Lennox Lewis Academy to meet with Hennessy. And uh, we spent a weekend down there. And I remember Andy Morris was also down there having a meeting, I think, with Panos Eliadis and... He was down there with his old amateur coach, this an old guy from Manchester. Anyway, he was absolutely steaming. And we were up on the top floor where there was a bit of canteen. And he comes in and he's talking. You know, he was a big, big Ricky Hatton fan. And Carl was winding him up saying, nah, Ricardo Williams schools him every day of the week, <laughs> twice on Sundays. And your man was losing the plat. We were arguing. Yeah. And he was pissed up and he was arguing with Carl. And I was putting Tabasco sauce in his bottle of wood. <laughs> I can remember that, you know. Do you remember? I totally forgot about that, but I can remember it now quite vividly. You were spiking I mean, this thing with Tabasco Yeah. So. I mean, I just kept putting more and more in. And Robert and, and NSC was laughing anyway. And he, he was drinking, drinking it. it. <laughs> and then the next thing, he puts it down, spits it out and goes, very fucking funny. Thanks, Robert. And Robert was disgusted because he went back along by and he's thinking, oh, lads, what are you doing? But it was just one of those, you know, it was a funny, funny night. I can remember that guy, yeah, quite a big geezer, wasn't he? quite a tall. Yeah. Quite, I didn't know him, but I can remember the wind-up. Yeah, and he was, he was pissed. He'd been drinking <laughs> and um, I was on the, it was proper Ricky Atten fan. I had him on a wind-up. We had some laughs at that Lennox Lewis College. I was gutted when you signed with uh, Frank Warren, but you did yeah. what you did at the time because, you know, Frank Warren was proven. And it, to be honest, if I'd, have, if I'd have signed with Frank Warren, it might have been better for my career and he might have promoted me better. May, may or may not have, but I listened I think to I've done the right. I think I did the right thing going with Warren because he was the better promoter. But I actually think in hindsight, I'd have probably been better off making the mistake and going with Hennessy because I'd have gone with Robert and he would have trained and managed him my whole career where really... All of a sudden, I'm boxing in six weeks. Up until that point, I thought Robert was going to try and manage me. That was just a given. Yeah. And then I'm boxing in six weeks and pro debuting. And really, after that, I never really found that one trainer. That's why I think it was always train, changing yeah. trainers. And, and never you knew Robert McCracken, didn't you? I think it was a tough decision for you to not go with Hennessy and go with Warren instead. because And you still wanted McCracken to train you, didn't you? But yeah. it would yeah. have been too awkward having you in, in, at the Lennox Lewis College and Hennessy yeah. being just, there because he, he can make things awkward. Hennessy can. I just never, I just, there was something about me, Hennessy. I just never, I just don't know, I just never, never trusted him or something. I just got a bad vibe, I think. Yeah, yeah, well, I had the same vibe, mate, but I literally went with McCracken. <laughs> I trust I trusted McCracken. And um before the Super Six and um I actually ended up I, I ended up in litigation with Hennessy. Um it never went it never went as far as to the point because we settled out of court and, and I don't know if there's a gagging order on it, so I'm not gonna say too much. But um when I went into the Super Six World Boxing Classic, I kind of knew that I wasn't happy with what was going on and I I don't know if I was 
being looked after properly. Um, on it's the hard when that's happening, isn't it? Shit outside uh, of the ring. And I, needed to, I needed to see full disclosure. I needed full transparency. I needed to see everything. And I wasn't getting it. So when I signed the Super 6, the, the, I opened up a new company, a new limited company. And the, the license agreement with Showtime was put in my company. My company owned the license agreement and the rights. You know, that was my that was my bag, my baby. I was going nowhere. So the signing fee for the television rights for that tournament went straight into my limited company. Do not pass go, do not collect 200. And when I got paid, I paid McCracken what I earned, 10% of it. And that was it. And then it kind of, it went, it went wrong after that. I did the Super 6, yeah. but during the Super 6, Eddie Hearn came on board. I think Eddie Hearn came, well, he did come on board for the, for the Glenkoff Johnson fight. Yeah. I, I sort of appointed um, Eddie Hearn during the tournament and that, that fight was shown. Was that fight shown on Sky Sports? I think it was. It was, Glenn yeah. Johnson. And, the, uh, and obviously the Ward fight. So I remember it's, quite a bad I over... for me because it's quite a bad comeback for me because I boxed Johnson and it was a bit of a stinker. I mean, I was I weighed 11 stone 7 the day before the weigh-in. I was 11 stone 7. I was in New York in high humidity, sweating my balls off every single day in the gym because it was so hot and close and humid. I was so light and slim. I could have made middleweight, but... I weighed in the day before. I don't know what I think. I, I was eating porridge and drinking, trying to hydrate myself before I got on the scales. And I still made the weight really easy. I think I got in the ring on the night, probably 12 stone. He was probably 14 stone. I don't know how big he was, actually, Johnson. I could just remember jabbing him in round one and hitting him with a right hand. Because he was quite slow, Johnson, coming forward, yeah. plodding forward. Tries to work the body. 42 years old, same age as me now. I couldn't imagine doing what he did. He went 12 rounds with me. And I was quite it was a tough ball route, though, wasn't he? Tough. tough. And every time he hit me in the body, I thought to myself, oh, what was that? That hurt. Took the wind out of my sails. Every right hand he hit me with, I thought to myself, I mean, he knocked out Antonio Tarvin. He knocked out Roy Jones Jr. Um, so he could punch. And he hit me with a couple of right-handers in round six and seven and round nine. And I tell you what, mate, I can still feel them now. And then, that was a fight that was my first fight back on Sky Sports, but it was close. I think the Japanese judge had it a draw and the other two had me two or three rounds. I won the fight, but it was no, I didn't set the world alight. And then my next fight was Andre Ward, which I lost. So my first two fights back on Sky Sports with, with um, Eddie Hearn was, was two not really great fights. So when I boxed Butte in 2012, everyone thought I was going to get beat up. And look at the performance I put in. It's amazing boxing how it works out. Yeah, it was good. You're as good as your last fight, and you're as bad as your last fight. But you can have a little, you know, you can have a bad run or maybe a run that's not really inspiring, and then you, you know, one massive performance, and all of a sudden, you're the best thing again. Yeah, exactly. And that's how it, that's how it is with boxing. Unfortunately, it's like, it's like that with quite a few sports, but boxing, boxing mainly. If you lose a fight against somebody, people don't let you hear the end of it. Come on, Andy. I know you don't. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. To speak. 
Well, you could just you you can fall quite a long way quite quite quickly, basically, can't you? And it's it's interesting just to just to hear you talk about the kind of ebbs and flows of it. And we spoke to you about the Butte fight when we were in Nottingham about a, about a year ago because it's one that I just remember so clearly because of the atmosphere and because of what happened um, in the ring. Uh, we won't keep you for too much longer, but but one thing I'm curious to ask you both because we had a chat about this in. I can't remember where it was exactly, but it was a fight night, I think, towards the end of last year or maybe in Sheffield at the start of this year. And the two of you and Johnny Nelson, I don't know how we got onto it, but you just ended up sitting around comparing um, your respective physical aches and pains and and gripes and and complaints because I look at you two and you look like you're in absolutely sensational shape, just just as good as you were when when you were fighting. You do, you do, though. You you look... (laughs) You look like you're bearing a six pack for those people listening on audio. But anybody who sees you around fight night around the ring, they they will they will one hundred percent agree with that. But what kind of of toll would you both say uh, a career in professional boxing has taken on your on your bodies? Because people talk about um brain injuries and and, and, and CTE. We can't know about that yet. We can't know about that uh, with regard to either of you two. So we don't really need to go down that particular road, although you can talk about whether you worry about that or not, if you if you wish. Uh, but just in terms of 25 years spent punching things, how how are you both? Matt, I'll let you go. Um, yeah, I mean, with regard to the CT, with the, the brain trauma, I mean, me and Carl were in a lot of hard fights and we, I, I'm guessing Carl sparred quite hard and, you know, he, he wasn't the slickest. He used to get hit, as did I. So, you know, there's uh but I think we both seem fairly articulate. We've got our senses and uh, I think we I think we got away with it. I think we both retired probably at the right time for us in our own careers. Um and hopefully that, that stays that way physically, bodily. Um I'm okay. I tick over now, I train just to keep myself fit and healthy. Actually something I never did when in between fights when I should have been should have been. But um, I don't push myself too hard. I don't go to that level of injury. I, you know, I'll train a little bit. I'll, I'll get a good sweat. I don't know. I'll, I'll get my heart and lungs working. But I don't, I'm not going through pain barriers because I'm not training for anything. I'm just training to stay fit and healthy. So, but I, I, I mean, you know, maybe maybe I'll do a challenge, a triathlon. I've always said I'd like to do a triathlon. So maybe one day I'll, I'll sign up for one of those. But uh Right now, I'll just stay, just stay fit and healthy. That's it, really. So I don't, I don't push to that level where the injuries would happen. So you've no, you've not got any, any lasting aches and pains or injuries. I mean, how many operations have you had during your professional career? Uh, had an operation. No, I'm, I'm on, I had the rhinoplasty operation on my nose after the uh, Martinez fight to, to improve my breathing. Okay, um, now, which doctor did you use? <laughs> well, I didn't have the nose job. I was just going for the breathing. I'm only joking. <laughs> That was a drunken situation. That, yeah, you got your railings so. your railings knocked out, didn't you? So you've yeah. not had any see I've been I've had four operations because of boxing. I had two hand operations. And my hands have always been quite fine, but I ruptured the extensive mechanism on my right knuckle in this in the middle finger. That finger, right down the middle. So that, <laughs> that was opened up and repaired. And I broke the first metacarpal on my thumb when I boxed Brian McGee. That was in round two. I hit him with a right hook on the side of the head and had these rubbish BBE gloves on where it's put my thumb in the position at the side of your 
side of your hand instead of it being under there it was there so it it forced it backwards or forced it the other way no forced it backwards that way and snapped the thumb in round two I knocked him out in round 11 Brian McGee it was quite a tough nut as well so I boxed for nine rounds with a broken bloody hand um, Rob McCracken being Rob McCracken said it'll be all right I'm like Rob my hand's absolutely killing me it's throbbing me he went no 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 it'll be all right in a minute and sure enough next couple of rounds I forgot about it it was still yeah. sore but I just thought I'd banged my thumb a little bit but I needed an emergency operation so in terms of how am I physically and how do I walk around I've, I know football players I've got friends from Nottingham Forest that are walking around with limps and the hips are hurting and the the, the, the hamstrings are knackered and the, the groins are gone and they, they're in they're in trouble um, I can run I can run I can walk I don't run because I don't want to but I sprint after my kids on the paddock at the back of my house all the time so I can run I can cycle in I still go in the gym and lift a lot of weights. I swim quite a lot. I do I do everything I want to do, I can do. So physically, I'm okay. I've had cortisone injections in my elbows. I've had two hand-ups and I've had an ACL reconstruction in, in my knee. And I had a tiny, tiny little bit, the smallest bit of work you would even know. You wouldn't even notice it. I had that done on my nose. You wouldn't even notice the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I, had that, I had that done when I finished boxing. But other than that, to answer your question, Andy, physically, I'm not a wreck. I'm in good shape, to be honest. But when I say I'm, I'm injured and I can't fight anymore and I'm too old and that, that's because you have to be in real good shape to box and you have to be able to get... I can't straighten my right arm and I can't touch my shoulders and my arms because I've got limited... I've got osteophytes on my elbow. So I can't bend my arms fully. I can't fully straighten my arm. And if I'm forced to straighten it or forced to bend it, it really, really hurts. I would not be able to box again comfortably. I'd need to be wrapped up in duct tape and injected with cortisone injections to get through a camp. Um, but in terms of life after boxing, I go skiing, I go swimming, I go running. I'm in, I'm in good nick, to be honest. I think that's the same. Well, it's good to hear. It's good to hear. Um, I, I did kind of half expect to see you crop up on um, that SAS show. So when it was Bellew and not you, I was, I was a bit surprised. I thought, I thought that, I, that'd I have you written all over it. I did have the opportunity to go in that, but I didn't fancy it. You know what? You know what kills me about that show? I, well, for me, I think it's a great show. I love it. Ant Middleton's a friend of mine, which might be a problem if if I wanted to go in. But I didn't want to go in because the interrogation for the last 24, 36 hours, I just couldn't be asked. It's too much. You've got headphones <laughs> on, listen to barking dogs and screaming babies. You're in stress positions. You're getting shouted at, and you know. Life's too short, mate. I ain't, ain't going to put myself through that. Why am I sitting there getting shouted at and bullied and chucked around? I'd end up losing my temper and knocking Ant Middleton's spark out. And I think Ant Middleton knows if I had a go at him, he'd be struggling. He'd be banging trouble. And I don't think he'd have me on anyway. Would you by any chance back him up and absolutely smash him to bits? Is that what you're saying? I think he knows it as well. Thinking. Oh, it's been good fun, this. It's been good fun. Um, Actually, one, one other thing that Seltzer reminded me of when we were talking to him, um, he was talking about a time before a fight where I think on the Thursday or Friday, you went out just for a, a quick walk around Hampstead Heath, maybe somewhere, and you found a load of paparazzi spying on George Michael. Uh, and in the end, they all started chasing you down the road. He was he was regaling us with stories of strange things that happened during during Frotch fight weeks. I mean, did you... Seltzer, Seltzer. The reason I mention it is Seltzer. Seltzer. Yeah, was was it David? Was it David, like David, David Furnish? David Furnish. Who was it? Oh, that's it. That's it. That's it. Furnish. Yeah, I can remember actually. I was I was doing a walk in the morning, and there was loads of yeah. There was there was paparazzi hanging around this house, around an apartment where where I rented out. Was that for the Groves fight? I think it was, wasn't it? But one thing he mentioned, which um, 
which is a final thing I'll, I'll, I'll ask the pair of you, is he said that, he, as he described it, and he's right, he said it's different strokes for different folks. But I was asking him the question, basically, do you think that fighters now have too many people around them? Are the teams too big? Um, because Froch always had a small team. Um, Calzaghe always had a small team. Hatton was the same. There weren't that many people involved. And he said, well, Carl just didn't really like having that many people around him. He wasn't really into into crowds. But it is one area in which boxing does seem to have changed quite a lot in the just four or five years since since you two finished. Uh, and that is to see more and more people involved in, in a fighter's career. And I mean on the boxing side, not just, you know, a business side of it's different. Yeah, I think commercially you need a bigger team around you if you're big enough. Like AJ, for example, won an Olympic gold medal and he turned pro heavyweight. Heavyweight's a different sport to the rest of the boxes. It's just you just get so much attention and so much um, marketing push and then everybody wants to stick their sticker on you, Lucas Aid Sport, Under Armour, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they need a big team because a lot of people in the office doing working. And, and the way social media is now with Instagram, I mean, Twitter, to be honest, Twitter's dead. Twitter's dying. You might as well forget about Twitter. Instagram's the one now moving forward. And I've got this silly TikTok going off, which everyone's getting into slowly. But Instagram for fighters now is is really is really a good, powerful tool if you're getting up there and you've got plenty of followers and the, the companies and you're winning world titles because they push the brands and they can make you a lot of money. Um, but in terms of a team around you for getting the commercial side, it is good to have a physio and a psychologist and a nutritionist and you know, sports scientists and people to put all this input and, and take your body fat and make sure you're eating the right stuff. But I think I'm very old school. And when you get down to it, when you're in that ring on fight night, as long as you've eaten decently enough, healthy enough, mm. your body takes care of all the food. Your body separates why you've got a liver and kidneys and a stomach. Your body looks after itself, provided you give it a certain amount of nutrition. You can eat correctly and, and you can eat incorrectly. Don't get me wrong. A dietitian and a a sports scientist who's... But you can get over-obsessed with it, can't yeah. you? Yeah, you can, you can be too much weighing your food and eating this at this time and eating that at that time. You've got to make weight and it's important not to dehydrate. You can eat the best food in the world on a 12-month camp, a 12-week camp. But if you dehydrate for 24 hours before the fight to make weight, you might as well forget it. You've just turned your batteries off. You've got no power. You've got no strength. You're getting knocked out. Um, after time, your opponent's dehydrated as well, so it levels the, levels the playing field. But I'm old school... I do my push-ups, my pull-ups, my dips. I don't use any equipment. I spar hard, I run hard. And when I get in the ring, I believe in myself. And, and I'm not stupid. I don't drink, don't smoke, don't eat crap foods. You know, or if I do eat crap foods, I eat it in moderation. When I boxed, I'm talking about. I mean, I'm cleaner now at eating than what I was then, but that's that's for different reasons. But um, I think a team can be too big and it can be dangerous. And we've seen it with, with Mike Tyson and other heavyweights over the years. They just end up getting the money sucked out of them and it cost them an absolute fortune but some people need that entourage around them. Like Mike Tyson, again, he said he needed him around them. He needed that 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 big amount of people, that big group, that entourage around him to make him feel good. And he was treat, buying them all stuff and spending his money and wasting his money. And that's what that's what made him feel good about himself. And that's just how it was. Me and myself, I only had belief and confidence in Rob McCracken. Uh, Mark Seltzer was good for me. He was on the team. The only time I ever had any kind of VIP treatment, if you like, was when I was at the EIS in Sheffield because I was just, I became friendly with Chris Marshall, who's a psychologist, and Mark Ellison, who was the nutritionist, and, you know, the strength and conditioner that was there. I was working with them just as a bonus, and I was learning more about boxing. And did it help me? 
if I'm honest, it probably did, especially in the rematch for Groves of psychology and making the weight better because when I got to my mid thirties, 12 stone was starting to become a lot harder. And when I knew when to eat the carbs and when to eat the protein and when to keep myself hydrated, then go nil by mouth for the rest of the night and wake up and do a run on an empty stomach, that got my weight to the point where I was still as strong as I could be on the scales. And it was important later on in my career. So I think it helps, but it is different strokes for different folks, horses for courses. And um, what works for you and what makes you perform at your best when you get through them ropes is what you should be doing. I'm just a one-man band, to be honest. Uh, I think Matt had probably a couple more people around him than I had, but you had a few different trainers. He was always finding your feet and you never, like you said, you never really found the correct trainer that you had a bond with. Or maybe you did have a bond, but the kind of trusting relationship. Rob McCracken, to me, is almost like a brother and or or father i've got that much respect for him and i've never kind of take the piss out of him or I'd never be cheeky to him. i'd never answer him back ever because he's rob mccracken but the, i had a i don't want to go too deep but my mum and dad split up when i was six years old and my mum left and took my two brothers with her and i was stuck with my dad at home and my dad was out all the time i was on my own and i'd be i i'd be i learned to become self-sufficient from a very young age and I think that helped me throughout my professional career. From six years old, I was wondering where my mum was. Like, where's my mum? I miss my mum. I don't know where she is. And my dad was never in. And I was on my own a lot. I could remember being on my own when I look back. And I'm not going to start crying or anything. But that set me up for a professional career that you spend a lot of time on your own. And I enjoy my own company. You know, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, and people are different. Some people like to be loved. They've got brothers and sisters around them all the time. And they've got the mum and the dad and uncles and aunties. And they see the grandma and parents, grandparents every weekend. And I think it's just what works for you works for you. I am who I am, but I'm a product of my upbringing. And um, AJ's AJ. And Matt, Matt Macklin, I don't know. How many people did you have around you when you was in camp? No, not a lot at all, really. Just had Seamus, my brother, was, was was always with me. Other than that, I was pretty much a loner. And, and I, I, as you rightly said, Carl, I changed trainers, I suppose. I think I was when I was amateur, I was very close with Robert. I thought he was nailed on that he was going to manage to train me. And obviously... I ended up going with Warren. That never happened. And even though I had good bonds with Billy Graham, I was with him for a few years. I had bonds with uh, Joe Gallagher as well. Obviously, a few stints with Buddy McGurk. I don't think I ever ever really found that mentor, not just a trainer, but a mentor, someone that you got that, that pure trust in, as you spoke, which because boxing so much more than one, two left hook on the pads or one at six in the morning. It's the emotional side. And I don't think I ever really found that. And I think even... Even my style, you know, Billy Graham had one style of fighting. Obviously, Buddy McGurk was completely different. And I think I changed styles a few different times where you just stayed with the one, you perfected it, you perfected your, your training routine, you got the sparring, and you knew what worked for you, and, and you just stuck to it. And then you, you, you tweak it then because all the variables are consistent every time. You just then you can you can say, well, I did too much of that, or we didn't do enough for this. But in terms of entourages and things like that. No, never bought into that. I was very old school myself. When I fought Sturm, there was a great camaraderie over there because we had all the, you know, the Smiths, Paul Smith, Stephen Smith, Andy Crowler was training for a fight. John Murray was training for a fight. So Gallagher very much had the camp over there. So there was that real good camaraderie in the change beforehand. When I fought Sergio Martinez, I remember getting a tax, uh, taxi or a car picked us up, I can't remember, me and Seamus, literally just me and my brother with my back, uh, and dropped us outside Madison Square Garden. Brian Peters was already in there, but he was already there. So, I mean, that was me yeah, and my brother. You and your brother on your own turned up to a massive fight at the Garden, Madison Square Garden, against a fighter like him. 
Um, I mean, amazing. Um, but that's people people don't understand it, that they don't realise. But when you're not getting the massive money and you're not you're not earning the the big big bucks, you're not chucking money away, wasting it. You've got to be quite frugal with your money. And how much do you need? How many people do you need around you? You probably don't. Do you know what I mean? So, no. But I, but, I think boxing yeah. is probably one of the only sports though where there's probably a couple of other sports, individual sports like tennis and maybe golf. But where the coach is so important in your career and, and your performance on the night. I can imagine if I play a bit of golf now, so a golfer and his caddy have a relationship. The caddy's not just getting his club out and giving him a club. The caddy talks to the, the golfer um, and, and says, hit your eight iron here because it's a bit windy and you're good with your eight iron. Don't use your pitching wedge because you're going to fall short or whatever. And, and, and the golfer, Tiger Woods, will trust his caddy and listen to what he's saying. And they work as a team and they've got a bond. And it's usually, it's usually a lifelong bond that they got. A lot of the golfers, Justin Rose was similar, Roy McIlroy. And boxing, I think, if you get that right coach, that right corner man, that's somebody you, who you love and respect and can trust with your life, because you're putting your life in their hands at times, then you're going to get the best possible performance out of yourself. And I hate to say it, but I do think you maybe missed out on that. And, and, it, and it did limit your performance sometimes in a couple of your fights I think maybe I don't know would it have been any different against someone like Martinez another time but when you're a bit unsure and you're switching trainers and you're chopping and changing it's not good for you Prince Nassim Hamid could have been an amazing legend who went down in the history as one of the greatest of all times as far as I know but I love Naz I thought he was a great entertainer but when he left Brendan Ingle I think that was the end of him yeah never the same after that he started declining the performances went downhill after that and there's other fighters you can name that, that that change trainers and chop and change all the time and they never really find their niche, you know. But, oh, you bang uh, on. Absolutely. Spawn the money there. 100%. Well, it is rare. It is rare to, to find a fighter these days who who sticks through with a trainer the entire way through, through because pretty much everybody will suffer a defeat at some point and particularly when it's a first defeat, they find it difficult to, to handle and often the trainer is the... Is the casualty. So we'll we'll leave it there, chaps. This has been great fun. Um, thanks very much for, for joining, joining us, Carl. Carl. Just a quick one. Just a quick one, Carl. Where would you put the Pascal and the Jermaine Taylor fights in your whole career? Where would I put them? What in terms of what? In terms of importance? In terms of uh, <coughs> yeah. Fights, so. Like if you were going to say, if someone said, "Give us your three best wins," would it? Would they um, be there? I, when I do evenings with guest speaks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, people always say. What's your best performance? What's your best win? And and because because I've had I've been I've had such a privileged career and I've been so fortunate to to fight top fighters, fight after fight after fight, in important fights, and then end my career the, the way in which I did. And and we've not talked about it, and we've not said it, but eighty thousand people at Wembley Stadium <laughs> It's a big number, and it needs to be mentioned. Oh, we've we. We're, seven, we're 74 minutes in and he, we managed to get him all the way through very nearly to the end without saying it. But I'm glad you said it. It's not the same. Oh, if you we ran out of time. Keep going. Yeah. Jermaine, John Pascal was my first world title fight. First time I woke up in the morning, I got the WBC, the green and gold belt, the belt that Muhammad Ali had and Mike Tyson had. That was an amazing feeling. And that was me at the start of my journey. But the Jermaine Taylor fight, I mean, to, to defend your title in such dramatic fashion uh, um, away from home, in against a fighter that under the former undisputed super uh, middleweight champion at, against you know against all odds coming back in that last round that's right up there but honestly the Butte fight the Lucian Butte fight after losing to Andre Ward was so important for me that I had to win that if I didn't win that fight I would have 100% categorically retired I would have retired 
had a had a slow performance against Johnson. I lost to Andre Ward. Imagine then losing to Butte. I'd made a few quid. I was all right. I was in a good position. I was falling out of love with the You'd sport. You'd have retired. You'd have retired. Yeah, could have retired. So that win for me was was amazing. But then you've got the Mikel Kessler. I got beat by Mikel Kessler. Fair and square. I lost to him. It was a close fight. Close but yeah, it was close. And I lost. But to avenge that defeat at the O2 in London, with 20,000 people there, and that on Sky pay-per-view, with that kind of accolades that I was getting and the build-up, and you know, I was like the new guy for Sky now, and I was, I was on top of the world. just beating Did you feel there. a bit like about fucking time? <laughs> I did. I did feel like that, and I, and I absolutely loved it. And that's one of the reasons, that feeling there that you've just said, that's why I didn't want to fight Groves. Because after beating Kessler, when Eddie Hearn put George Groves in front of me, I was like, George, George Groves? What do you mean, George Groves? I used to play with him in sparring. He's, he's not good enough. As soon as I hit him on the chin, he'll be out cold. This ain't a big fight. And how wrong was I? It was a great fight, domestic fight, and we got the rematch. Um, but, yeah, after the Kessler fight, that was me, really. I thought, right, now I need Vegas. Now I need a, I need a Roy Jones Jr. in Vegas. Who can we get? Who can we get? And I was looking at um, Chavez Jr. But um, we got Groves 1 and Groves 2. I mean, what a finish into my career. What an icing and the cherry on top of the cake. I was very, very fortunate, you know. But... I had I to do the fighting, it. and I had to do the winning. And, yeah, well, like you said, I don't, I don't like to say, say I deserved it. You can say you were lucky with those fights, but look, look how unlucky you were in terms of the Taylor fight, in terms of what it no, should exactly. have been. I put you know? the groundwork in. I've done my apprenticeship, and there's, there's fighters that probably deserve to be world champions that have not been world champions, and there's fighters that uh, are injured, and there's fighters that have passed away. And, you know, it's such a brutal sport. Look at... Look yeah, at, where you get robbed in Germany. Look at Errol Bomber Graham. Yeah, exactly. Look at Errol Bomber Graham, right? Errol Bomber Graham, one of the best fighters to never win a world title. And he's in a bad place now. I mean, it's just there's just no justice in the world, in life, in, in just full stop. And boxing has got to be the cruelest sport when you come down and hit rock bottom because there's no way back then. There's no way back at all. And when you get the taste of the superstardom and you're on the rise, I look at people like David Walker, I signed the... the um, Class of 2002 with Mick Hennessy. David Walker wanted a bad little fighter. Matthew Furwell and Lee Meager. Yeah. Matthew Furwell was an ABA champion, decent amateur, turned pro. He was going to be the next Nigel Benn. And he never quite made it. I don't think he had the punching power. I think that's all he was lacking. He was quite tough, but he never had that power. David Walker, good fighter and that, but never lived the life. He fought Spencer. Um, <laughs> he fought the knowledge, didn't he, Spencer? Um, yeah, that's right. Hang on, why can't, why can't I think of his name? Spencer Fearon. Spencer Fearon, yeah, I can't, I can't think of his name. I've got Spencer McCracken in my head. So he fought Spencer Fearon in a right, like life and death, and he beat Fearon, didn't he? But um, like, he then, he then had substance abuse and he was, he was struggling with that. And he's, he, he sort of puts his life story on Facebook and everyone's looking at it, feeling sorry for him. It's, it's so sad. And, and, you know, to come out of the career that we've had, me and you, and come out on the top with our faculties intact. We yeah. don't know, like Andy said, we don't know what toll it took on our brains. But, you know, we could take our Omega-369 fish oils, drink our distilled water and eat as clean as we can and keep ourselves sharp. And I think we'll be OK. Um, we're physically in good shape. But imagine leaving the sport with not a pound note in the bank and injured to the point where you, you, you're badly injured and you're physically, you know, in a place where you can't function properly. I mean, it's such a cruel, cruel sport. 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 Yeah, and there's and there's some there's some there's some horrible stories, but there's some real fairy tale endings as well. And I think me and you have been fortunate. I've certainly been very very fortunate. But I like to think that I've worked worked for everything I've ever got. I do. I feel like 
and I'm not asking for credit or praise because I've never asked for it, but I feel that I deserve to be where I am and I've worked for it and I've put the graft in. And whenever I didn't put the graft in, I never got the results with anything in life, you know? So it's a lesson out there, not just for boxers, but for anybody in life in general. If you work hard and put the effort in and you believe in yourself, anything's achievable. And it might sound cliche, but I believe in that. And that's, the, that's how I'll bring my children up. Good man. Here I endeth the lesson. Here endeth the lesson from uh, Reverend Frotch, uh, and that is uh, that, that's a good place to leave it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not taking a piss. That's a. That's a. That, that's a good message, um, and one that people, one that people um, in professional sport, particularly that that's a real mantra. That's an adage. It's what people stick to. If if you work hard, if you do the right things, and if you keep doing them for a sustained period of time, if you persevere, then you will get somewhere towards where you want to be in the end. Um, the Butte fight you mentioned, and I absolutely love that fight. And we did talk about that at quite a lot of length in the first uh, podcast we did with Carl, which was last May. So if you want to get into depth on that one, then we, you can go back and uh, and listen to that. But this was this was a good make or break because it was a little bit different from the one with Anthony Crawler and the one with Spencer Oliver. But those two fights, I just remember that Pascal fight really, really well watching it on TV. And I remember listening to the to the Jermaine Taylor fight and and within the space of what four months of each other if you'd lost either one of them then it would have put a big delay on your career and who knows things could have been very very different and that and that's the whole point of, of what we're getting into with this series so thanks very much lads uh matt we'll be back next week carl hopefully we'll see you in person before before too long i think the signs are relatively good that 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 will that that will happen everybody else stay safe and we will be back Again next Look week. out to Miss Lottie Linger and old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line falls on the right babe, not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.